Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. here before we jump into uh, the message. One, um, uh, at times, we did this all through last year, at times throughout the year, we would introduce books to you and we would say, hey, we really want you to read this book. Um, And then we sort of force feed it onto you and we put copies in the entryway and beg you to read it, right? Um, And then sometimes I'll teach through those books and sometimes not. You may remember Uh, Last year when we did this, I did not teach through the Dallas Willard book, the one which I was told one million times was way too dense and hard to read. My bad. Um, But we did teach through Live No Lies. Okay, so that all went beautifully, and we always ran out of books, so we decided to do it again this year. Um, And we are starting uh, our emphasis on another book called Reappearing Church. I have a copy of it right here written by Mark Sayers, Reappearing Church. Um, The reason why we're focusing on this book, a number of reasons actually. Um, One, Mark Sayers is an absolutely brilliant thinker. His writing is much more accessible than Dallas Willard's though. But he is a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And he really has his finger on the pulse, uh, more so than honestly anyone I can think of, on the uh, big sort of socio-cultural shifts in our society. Um, uh, Last year we spent really a number of months over the course of the year, talking about the shifts that we've experienced in our culture, how we're supposed to respond to that, what that means for us as a church, et cetera, et cetera. And a number of you said, okay, that was good. I really like that. I want, to, I want some more practical next steps. Um, these, this book is written by the guy who I think has got his finger on the pulse of that more than anyone else for the sole purpose of giving practical next steps. Um, He also uses the remnant language. Remember, we talked about in the Uprising series how we need to be a remnant um, that that holds on to the truth of Scripture and then uh, affects real change in our community. Um, He talks about using small groups as a model um, to put those uh, into practice. And so this is just, guys, it's an exceptionally good and important book. I'm not going to be teaching through this one, uh, but we have a number of small groups that are going to be reading it together and walking through it together, four or five of them. That would be a great, especially if you really appreciated um, the Uprising series and some of the stuff we talked about um, during the Onward campaign about societal shifts. This would be particularly helpful, and it's challenging. It's an invitation to actually, kind of like Anna gave us an invitation, like, hey, let's actually go and do the stuff that we talk about. This book is same same vein. Let's actually do the things that we're talking about to become a remnant and a beautiful exception to all the angst and vitriol in our community. So um, these books will be available in the lobby next week. You can sign up for a small group that will be studying this book this week, and you can sign up for a whole bunch of other groups, 20-something of them. Uh, so we would love for you guys to take that next step, get involved in community, and uh, walk through some stuff with people. Um, that's one thing. One more thing, sorry for all the preamble, and then we'll get into the message. Uh, tomorrow is uh, MLK Junior Day. We celebrate uh, and remember his unbelievably significant legacy, um, his bravery, his, guys, stunning brilliance, uh, and the remarkable impact he had on uh, the entire world, and especially here in the United States. 
Um, each year, I just kind of give you guys a, a loving nudge. So here's my loving nudge. Um, this sort of this has been my routine for I don't I don't know over a decade now, and I, I would love for I think it's so good I kind of want to push it on to you to be your routine. Um, tomorrow, hopefully, you can find a few minutes, even if you don't have the day off, um, some time to pray and reflect and be grateful uh, for how far we have come in terms of race relations. Also, maybe take some time to pray and grieve for how far we have yet to go. Um, be grateful for MLK and his legacy. And the, uh, the specific thing I want to encourage you to do is to read his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Now, that's sort of a weird title, but it was a letter that he wrote from a jail in Birmingham. So thus the title, Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And it's available online for free. You just search, put that in a Google search and PDF and it's there. Uh, it's, it's a short read, but in just a few pages, you will get a sense of his bravery, of his insight, of his brilliance, and how his message was so incredibly important then and also is incredibly important now. Um, so I just want to encourage you guys uh, to do that. Let's take a second to pray here, and then we will jump into part two of two for this wholehearted series. Jesus, we love you so much. It's so good to be with you in this place, to be with your people, to enjoy your presence, to enjoy one another's presence. Lord, I ask that uh, now as we look to your word, the truth of scripture would, would penetrate our hearts, that, that if there's something true that applies to us, that resonates with us and in our spirit, Lord, that we wouldn't run past it, but that it would be embedded into our minds, that we would walk out of here holding on to the thoughts that you want us to have uh, from this message. So Lord, help me to deliver it um, and, and help us all to hear and to respond to the truth of your word. Um, we, uh, we just ask that you would, uh, you would meet with us in this moment and that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, wholehearted part two of two. So just a little mini series here. And we've been looking together at the life of King Asa and talking about King Asa's life in broad strokes unfolds in two really big phases, his adult life. He has the first few years of his adult life, phase one we looked at last week, the last few years of his adult life, that's phase two. We're going to um, get to that uh, today. I'm going to do uh, a bit of a, a recap here, but recaps are bad. If it was a good recap, it would just be last week's sermon all over again. So I'll just do a, a bit of a recap here. But if you weren't here last week, it might be a bit confusing. We're sort of jumping into the middle of a story. I encourage you to grab the podcast for that. But anyway, here's the summary. Uh, king Asa, at a young age, became the king of, of Judah. And he did really well. The Bible says he was devoted to the Lord. He was blessed. Um, he, he really he did all he could to, to like do it right. And the Bible says, I love this language, he built and he succeeded. And that as a result, the nation of Judah, they built and they succeeded. Um, we also saw that there were a few things that he knew to do, that he should have done, but he just didn't quite do. There were a few idols that he didn't address. I mean, he was trying to get it right. Um, uh, and on the whole, he did get it right, but there were still a couple of things that he didn't address that he should have addressed. And then Asa had what we called his great ordeal, and he had built, um, the Lord had blessed uh, his, his reign and his people, and they had built a, a massive, massive army, and they were really thriving on a number of levels, and yet they stood before an even larger army, and this was his rite of passage, his moment where he came to the end of himself and he didn't have any choice but to rely on God. And Asa did the right 
thing. He relied on God. And we had this reminder that even if we, and, and there's so many people in our church who are building and are succeeding. People are in the first few years of their adulthood. And so many of you are thriving. You're building and you're succeeded and you're succeeding. But what we said is there's always, always, always a bigger army. And that was Asa's story. He came before an even bigger army. He cried out to God as he should. Uh, he was given victory over this million-man army in front of him. And then after that happened, uh, the Lord sent a prophet, Azariah, to speak to Asa um, for the, what is to happen next after his great ordeal. So we're going to reread. We, we saw this last week, but look at these verses again. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. So he went out to meet Asa and said to him, very important, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, hear me. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. Very clear, very clear. There is, on the other side of his great ordeal, an opportunity for him to walk with Jesus in greater intimacy, in greater devotion, more wholeheartedly, because he was the, on the other side of his great ordeal. He cried out to God in desperation. And when we finally come to the end of ourselves, we have our rite of passage. We come to God. We cry out to him in desperation. We realize that our very best efforts aren't going to be good enough. We could do it perfectly, and it still wouldn't do. We come to that crisis. We cry out to the Lord. On the other side of that great ordeal, there is an invitation. This is the way the Lord has set it up. There's an opportunity for intimacy with the Lord and renewal and revival in our lives that, are, that is unique to those moments. There's an opportunity for deeper reliance and intimacy. And Asa, once again, got it right. He had this invitation to walk with the Lord in a new way, and he said yes. So let's read uh, a, a couple more verses, also ones that we looked at last week. Verse 8, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded the prophet, he took courage and he removed the abhorrent idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He renovated the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. In other words, I know it's a lot of words, um, he addressed the half measures of the first few years of his adult life. When he was doing things right, he was doing well, but he had some half measures, some things that he didn't really do in full. The idols that he didn't address didn't address before, he's addressing now. He has seen God come through, so now, on the other side of that, trusting God with everything wholehearted. And I'll just be frank, I said we have a disproportionate amount of people in this stage of life, in the first few years of your adulthood. I have seen people in this church face their crisis, and then on the other side of it, make that leap into wholeheartedness, and it's just been incredible to watch, and I, I've seen others, I, I think, have the same opportunity and pass on that opportunity and not take that leap in the wholeheartedness. There's a challenge in that. A few more verses, also ones we looked at last week, verse 12. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and all their soul. So the whole nation of Judah goes, all right, full speed, all out, everything we got, our whole heart, our whole soul, we're following the Lord. So um, uh, Asa makes the right choice. And the people of God, his nation does as well. Verse 13, here's the really wonky verse we talked about last week. Whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel would be put to death, young or old, man or woman. Yikes. Remember, this, is the, this really sits horribly in the story because um, Asa's doing great. And they're like, 
yay Jesus and they're full speed ahead and they're sincere and devoted and all about it. And then it's like, yeah, and everybody's on board or we'll murder you. And it's like, what is happening right now? Um, I told you last week that we, would, that we would talk about this. And I also said last week that we had done, um, I had read a number of pastors because uh, once I came to that verse, I was like, well, how have other pastors addressed this? And I read the n- several sermons and none of them addressed it at all. <laughs> they were like, nope, not going there. But we're going to talk about it. Um, what's upsetting about this is Ace is doing so well, you know, and he's taking care of, he's getting, but here's what's happening. In his desire to do well, he has a tremendous amount, and this is good, a tremendous amount of zeal. But you have to have a lot of maturity to handle zeal well. He doesn't quite have the maturity to handle the zeal well. This is showing us Ace's got some learning to do. Because this is, to be clear, this is not the right approach. Um, If we were to contrast um, Asa's approach here with the methods of Jesus, for example, good thing to compare to, uh, we would see a really stark difference. Uh, If you're a church kid, you've read through the Gospels, then you know this already. But Jesus, in his ministry, he offered, he invited, he welcomed, he challenged, he did, he challenged. But he never forced, he never demanded, He never once threatened and said, follow me or else. Never once. When he gave this beautiful invitation to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler said, thanks but no thanks, and turned and walked away, Jesus let him turn and walk away. When Jesus was speaking to the crowds and he said things that offended them because he challenged them a bit too much and they got under, he got under their skin and the crowds departed, they walked away shaking their heads thinking, what is this guy talking about? He didn't run to get them back. He let them go. No one was ever forced. This is why, and you know this already, but begrudging submission doesn't mean a darn thing. Begrudging submission is a zero. And so what Ace's move here, he didn't get anybody any closer to what God actually wanted with his threats and with his coercion. And of course, there's nothing in the text that says that God asked for this or wanted this or the prophet implied this. None of that. Asa thinks he's doing a good thing. He's trying to be zealous. He's trying to make real change. But he clearly hasn't figured out how people change. See, at the beginning of his reign, in the sort of the early years of his adulthood, he had the same sort of moment of zealotry. And he said, hey, let's get, um, let's get everybody on board. And so he commanded all of the people of Israel, You're all going to follow the Lord because I said so. And then that didn't work. And so now he's having another moment of zeal. And this time he says, you're going to follow the Lord because I said so. And if not, we'll kill you. And he was like, well, the last time didn't work. Let's crank it up. He doubles down on sort of a faulty idea. Now, um, quickly here, this this was thousands of years ago. And ancient sensibilities were vastly different than ours. Um, and so this lands on our, our modern sensibilities way differently than it would have then. Um, in our context, there would be a total uproar. I'm not sure very many people even batted an eye. They're like, well, yeah, that's what kings do. Okay. Um, Asa didn't think he was doing something horrible. He thought he was doing the right thing. But in his choice to force the issue here, there is a hint that there is something in him even in spite of his wholeheartedness, in spite of his, you know, he's on the other side of the great ordeal, he's making the right choices, but there's still something in him that struggles to trust the Lord. And we can look at this story and we can see, if you've been following along, then you know, well, he trusted God to give him victory in battle. 
He trusted God enough to follow God's commandments. He trusted God enough to build their nation's wealth and security. Um, But he did not trust God to change the people that he cared about the most. That he took into his own hands. And here's the thing. Again, this is such an extreme example because of the command that he made. Um, And none of us would ever consider doing anything like that or trying to get people to fall in line with Jesus at the threat of death. That sounds ridiculous to us. But I think we can stop and acknowledge that trusting God to change the people that we love the most is actually one of the hardest things to do. And one of the last things that we might be willing to hand over to him. It's really hard to trust God when children are in rebellion or when people we love walk away. And that creates in us possibly some real desperation and maybe not always the wisest choices. Maybe we force the issue a bit. And if we were to survey church history, if you're a church historian, you could, you could, you already know this, but there are some ugly marks in church history. And the ugliest marks on the church's ledger have always been when we failed to trust God to change people and we tried to force the change ourselves through you know, threats or manipulation or fear-mongering or whatever. And so really, as extreme as this is, this is a 3,000 years ago ancient version of that instinct. It says, I'm not sure I can trust God to redirect the people that I love and care about the most, I got to take matters into my own hands. Something to think about. Now, verse 14. They took an oath to the Lord and a loud voice was shouting with trumpets, with ram's horns. All Judah rejoiced over the oath. And as we said last week, everybody in Judah was on board and rejoicing about it, meaning the threat was not at all necessary. It just wasn't necessary. <clears throat> For they had sworn it, they rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn it wholeheartedly. It's a word that's going to keep coming up, wholeheartedly. They had sought him with all sincerity, and he was found by them. That was the promise, wasn't it? You seek me, you'll find me, that's what happened. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. So Asa makes a, makes a misstep here, that's obvious. But he was sincere, the people were sincere, they were on board, they were rejoicing, and most importantly, they were wholehearted, no half measures. And just as, again, as the prophet promised, they sought God, they found God. Now, again, that's really good, good momentum. And then the next verse sort of sits funny in the story in a way as well. Verse 17 says this, the high places and the high places were used for idol worship. Here we go. The high places were not taken away from Israel. Nevertheless, Asa was wholeheartedly devoted his entire life. So, tension there. There's another hint here for us as well. He stopped short of destroying all of the idols. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe it was a political move, like I've spent all my political capital, I can't do this right now. Maybe he was just tired. Uh, maybe he thought it wasn't a big deal. Maybe his theology was wrong. Maybe he was just scared. I don't know, but plain and simple, he was wrong. Nevertheless, the Bible says, tension. He's welcoming us to feel this tension. Nevertheless, the Bible says he was wholeheartedly devoted his entire life. That's an, that's an important tension for us to hold. Now, I, I'm obviously using 
these two sermons, this week and last, to try to convince as many of you as possible to be as wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord as you can be, all right? But please do not take the, the concept of being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord and, and confuse that with perfection. It's not a thing. Perfection's not a thing for me. It's not a thing for any of you. Asa was wholeheartedly devoted and still imperfect. Maybe he was confused. Maybe he wasn't quite brave enough yet. Maybe his wisdom wasn't really there yet. But he is in process. He is changing. He is forming. He was not perfect. And the Bible says wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his entire life. If we pursue wholehearted devotion to the Lord and then we screw up, and we absolutely will, then we will, I think, be tempted to conclude, well, I guess I wasn't really wholeheartedly devoted. Because that language is sort of, well, it's all or nothing, right? Like it's either 100% or not. And that makes sense. But the Bible very clearly says otherwise. The Bible very clearly says he was not perfect. He made mistakes. He was off in some ways. And yet wholeheartedly devoted his entire life. The test is sincerity, not perfection. Okay? Because if we aim for perfection, we're going to be dashed against the rocks in no time. Okay. All right. Verse 19 is how this wraps up. There was no war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. So that's a huge time gap. We're talking decades now of things just going great. Is Asa not perfect, wholeheartedly devoted, and the people of God with him. And so decades of thriving and peace and rest on every side. And those, those decades that came after his great ordeal, those, that's phase two of Asa's life. He came through his big moment. He did not let his crisis go to waste, as we talked about last week. And he lived wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, revival in his land. The people of God thrived. He won. He did it. Life well lived. Decades of peace. The Bible itself testifies that he was wholeheartedly devoted his entire life. Great. No, really great. I said that came out sort of sarcastically, and I didn't mean it sarcastically. Just great, period. Exclamation point. Great. But, <laughs> always a but. Um, but there was another test coming for Asa. And hear me on this, especially if you're, you know, well north of 40. Hear me on this. There was another test coming. There's always another test coming. Always. Now here's the thing. Last week, I had my sights and my targets set on younger adults in the first you know, 10, 15 years of adulthood. Um, uh, and today, I've got my eyes focused on the older folks who are past that phase. Um, and last week, when I said, I made a big deal out of it, there's always a bigger army, said it pretty adamantly. There's always a bigger army. When I said that, there were a lot of gray heads in the room nodding in agreement. And you're going, yep, been there. You, yep, mm-hmm, it's a thing. There's always a bigger army, because you know. But now I'm talking to you. There's always another test. There's always another test. Always. There's, there's no magic age where we can say we've done our part we did what was ours to do, and so we can coast the rest of the way. It's not a thing. And here's the reality. This one's tough. The test that comes 
later in life is usually harder. It is. And that could be for a whole host of reasons, but if for nothing else, it's for this one simple reason, because later in life, frankly, you've got more to lose later in life. To lay everything down on the line costs you more as you have more things to lay down on the line. Sharon and I, if we're not careful, sometimes we will fall into the trap of patting ourselves on the back because in our early 20s, uh, we moved into my grandma's basement and planted a church because we laid everything down. We, whatever the Lord asked of us to do, we were willing to do it. And everything that we had, we put it on the line for the kingdom of God. And that's good. And that's true. And we can pat ourselves on the back for that. But then it wasn't too long ago I was thinking back and reflecting on that and probably patting myself on the back a little bit. And then I realized we didn't have anything to put on the line. We had nothing. We had less than nothing. We had zilch. We had we, no children to support, no mortgage. No, I like just, we had nothing. And frankly, we did. Now, look, it's good that we did it, blah, blah, blah. But we did what sounded like the best, most exciting thing to do in the moment. And it was sort of one of our, one of our first great ordeals for sure. And yet, we had nothing to lose. Now, a little bit older, a little bit more to lose. And that continues on. And here's the thing I really want us to lean into. Is just as I said, we have so many people. Last week, there's so many people in, the 20, in our 20s, 30s, early 40s who are doing really well. They're really established. Um, there are a lot of people who are in that next phase of life who are also have done really well. And here's the thing. When you have more, it is more tempting to rely on what you have in order to save you, to be your rescue. I want that to settle in. And as we're about to see, that is exactly King Asa's failure later in life. So here's the other test that came his way. Uh, chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of Asa, and this is of Asa's reign, okay, so he's been at it for decades. Israel's king Basha went to war against Judah. So he, they were attacked. He built Ramah in order to keep anyone from leaving or coming to Asa of Judah. So um, strongholds basically were set up to keep them at bay. So Asa brought out, here's his conclusion. There's, a, there's, a, there's an alliance, a military alliance that's coming against them, and they're going with great efforts. They're building cities in order to help accomplish this military war. Verse 2. So Asa, here's his answer. He brought out the silver and gold from the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the royal palace and sent it to Aram, that's the invading king, sent it to Aram's king, Ben-Hadad, who lived in Damascus, saying, there's a, there's a treaty between me and you, between my father and your father. Look, I've sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Israel's king, Basha, so that he will withdraw from me. So he goes to his attacker and says, here is a lot of money. Switch teams. Verse 4. Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies to the cities of Israel. They attacked Ejon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard about it, he quit building Ramah and stopped his work. So an alliance is built to oppose King Asa. King Asa empties out a bunch of silver and gold and goes, how about that not be your alliance? 
and instead you work for me and we'll ward off the threat together. And it worked. What's interesting is just like when Asa was young, there's another threat against Judah. But this time, Asa did not trust the Lord. Instead, he looked to his bank account. He had enough money to make this problem go away. So that's what he did. And you'll notice, it said explicitly later, but you'll notice so far, and he doesn't have any, down the road either, he never once seeks the Lord's help. Never once. Because he fell for the temptation to rely upon what he already had. Because now, at this stage of life, he's got some stuff. So, Second Chronicles 16, verse 7, let's see what happens in the wake of his second great ordeal, and it's the same thing that happens in the wake of the first great ordeal. God sends a prophet. Verse 7, At that time, the seer, Hanani, came to King Asa of Judah and said to him, Because you depended on the king of Aram and have not depended on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from you. Were not the Cushites and Libyans, that's who they fought decades before in his first great battle, were not the Cushites and Libyans a vast army with many chariots and horsemen? When you depended on the Lord, he handed them over to you. So he's reminding him of his own history. He's like, don't you remember what happened before? Last time when this happened? 25, 30 years ago? Don't you remember a few decades ago when you still knew your own weakness? And you cried out to God and you didn't rely on yourself? Remember, God came through. And here we are, same situation as before, but you handled it differently. Remember before? Remember the difference? And he challenges him. This is a challenging word. I just want to point out the obvious. Um, as we uh, go from children to adults, theoretically, I know this is happening less and less, but theoretically, we age out of our day-to-day -day reliance upon our parents. And that's good. But you never, ever age out of your day-to-day -day reliance upon God. Ever. No matter how much you have built and succeeded. So, verse 9. And this is really important. This is the word of the Lord to Asa and to us. Man, this is good. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. That's an important aspect of the character of God. Hold on to that. And then he adds, you, Asa, have been foolish in this matter. Therefore, you will have wars from now on. And notice the response. Asa was enraged with the seer, put him in prison because of his anger over this. That's a different response than the first time around. And this is sort of gets added in, and I wonder what all's behind it. And Asa mistreated some of the people at that time. So he's, he's, he's unraveling a little bit here. So, just like the first time the threat was followed by a prophetic word, unlike last time, this one was a rebuke. Unlike last time, Asa rejected the prophecy. Now, here's the thing. There's, I, there's a rumor that I, that I have heard. R rumor. And I can, I can neither confirm nor deny this, this rumor. But the rumor that I've heard, and don't shoot the messenger, all right, um, the rumor is that possibly, maybe, 
as people become older, perhaps they become a bit more set in their ways? Question mark? Just a rumor. It's just a rumor. It has been said by others, not me, I would never, but it's been said then that as people grow over, older, they might be less likely to hear and apply wisdom that is offered to them. Now, I'm not saying that's correct. Maybe it's just a really horribly unfair stereotype. But if it is a really horribly unfair stereotype, then we have to say it's just sheer coincidence that that stereotype appears to have been true in Ace's case. Some pretty good tiptoeing, right? Let's get a bit more bold. I think it's true. Okay. So, so now, at the end of what we just read, we start, as I said, we see Asa starting to unravel. It starts forcing the issue everywhere. This is, this is I, I think this is why. That last bit of control that he never gave over to the Lord, that one little kernel of control that he held on to, I'm, I'm going to force the issue. I'm going to hold on to control for what happens for the people that I love or for these last, this one last idol. Okay. I'll trust God for some things, not all, for the last little tiny kernel of control that he held on to. That seed was planted and it grew. And as the decades passed, it grew and grew and grew until that impulse took over. And now he's forcing the issue in everything. You got a problem with a ram? He forces a ram into a treaty. Got a problem with a prophet? Throws that prophet in jail. Starts mistreating and abusing the people around him. Sounding pretty grumpy. All of this from a man who had spent decades following the Lord with wholehearted devotion. We just read it. And now let's look at how the story ends. And it's not a happy ending. Uh, two verses here. In the 39th year of his reign, so this is four years after that conflict, Asa developed a disease in his feet. His disease became increasingly severe. Yet, boy, this is a, a million words in one sentence. Even in his disease, he didn't seek the Lord, but only the physicians. 13, Asa rested with his ancestors. He died in the 41st year of his reign. So, King Asa's great ordeal, the first one, he comes through with great wisdom, not perfection. With wisdom, he was wholehearted, he was sincere. It was the springboard then for his entire nation and himself personally to thrive for decades. But there was this root, this little thing that was growing and growing. And then when his second ordeal came along, he had enough stuff that he started to trust in his stuff and in himself. And then it led, we can see clearly, to his total unraveling. And he continued to rely on himself all the way to his grave. And and clearly, he suffered stubbornly because of that. Now, here's the thing. I pointed out last week that we have a disproportionate amount of people in our church in that 20s, 30s, early 40s age range. It's like this sort of bump in our demographics. It's just just a reality. Um, which is the same age and stage that King Asa faced when he had his first great ordeal. 
Now, let me point out, interestingly enough, we also have a disproportionate amount of people in our church who are at the same stage of life as King Asa was at when he faced his second great ordeal. That's the second sort of demographic bump that we have in our church. And again, because of that, just like last week, I think Asa's story is especially instructive for us. And it could be a coincidence. It really could be, like legitimately. I'm open to the possibility that that's just a coincidence, that his life mirrors, you know, his great moments mirror where we have the two areas in which we have a disproportionate amount of people in our church. That's a possibility, but just frankly, I don't think so. I think the parallel is not coincidental. I think it might be prophetic. And then it might be for just this moment, not just, but for this moment for our church family. So, there's obviously, I didn't even say the obvious, there's obviously a warning in how Asa's life ended. (laughs) Don't want to go that route. And we need to heed that warning. But I want to be very clear about this. Please don't draw the wrong conclusion here. I do not think at all like for one second, that the correct interpretation of this story as a whole is that the young folks get it right and the older folks are going to get it wrong. Um, I don't think that at all. Don't, that's not the takeaway. That's just what happened in Ace's life. Okay? It's not hard at all um, to find younger people in the Bible making the same mistakes, the same horrible choices that Asa made at the end of his life. Okay? It's not, in fact... The ratio is probably totally out of whack. It's not hard at all to find younger folks making those mistakes. The point is just this. The invitation, regardless of age and stage, is to live in wholehearted devotion to the Lord, period. Not perfection, and don't fall for the trap, but sincere, wholehearted devotion. Casting aside the idols, addressing the things we need to address, Trusting in God's power, not our own. That's the big, power, the big variable. Whose power are we trusting in? Are we going to trust in our, our own efforts and our own strength as King Asa was tempted to do in the first great ordeal? Are we going to trust in our own security and our own finances as Asa unfortunately did in his second great ordeal? Or will we trust in the Lord? And his provision and his strength. And whatever you choose, at whatever stage of life you choose it, and this is so patently obvious in the story, one pathway leads to peace and renewal and thriving, while the other one leads to angst and loss and desperation. Do you see that? Do you? Do you? You all have to nod your heads or I'm not going to invite David to come up. All right, so David's going to come up. I don't know if he did it for the right reasons, but enough people nodded. Um, So the whole point that I want to make from both of these messages, it really does culminate and is summarized in in what the prophet Hanani beautifully said in chapter 16, verse 9. And this is the idea. This is the idea that we all need to go home with. I'll read it to you again. Please let it sink in. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. This needs to be imprinted into your mind. I want you to hold on to this image of God. It's right. It's true. The image of the almighty God filled with 
love and his eyes searching the globe, looking for anyone who is wholeheartedly devoted to him so that he can show himself strong on their behalf. The king of glory searching the, uh, searching the earth, his pockets overstuffed with blessings, looking for a place to pour them out, searching the world. Who is wholeheartedly devoted to me? Who? He is so eager to show his favor to the wholehearted that he is, is actively searching. Who? 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 Where are they? Where are they? Where can I find them? When Asa was wholehearted, God showed himself strong on his behalf. When Asa relied on himself, then he only received what he was able to provide for himself. So, young or old, male or female, Christian for a long time or not for a long time, with or without a good track record, it's all moot. Right now, God searching the earth so that he might show his favor to whoever is wholeheartedly devoted to him now. Past wholeheartedness doesn't mean a rip. The intention of future wholeheartedness means probably even less than a rip. The intent to do that doesn't mean a thing. God's eyes are roaming the earth, looking for the wholehearted, looking for the devoted, so that he might bless them. And I really believe God's invitation to us, and to some extent, I don't want to overstate it, but to some extent, uniquely and prophetically to our church in this moment, we should be those people wholeheartedly devoted to him, because I think he is so, so, I know he is so eager to show himself strong on our behalf. So I want to remind you one more time. I'm going to close by saying this. I'm just going to read the two words from the two prophets to remind us so that we might hold on to them ourselves. After each of the two great ordeals, the first one, chapter 15, verse 2, Azariah said this, The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. If you abandon him, he will abandon you. So clear. We said last week, we've got him right where you want him. You want him close, that's where he is. You want him far away, that's where he is. It's an overarching principle. You seek him, you find him. You seek him, you find him. And the second, the word of God through the prophet Hanani. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly 